0: welcome to First Church. So glad you're joining us today for worship. In addition to everybody we have here in person, I know we have hundreds of people worshiping with us online right now. So hey guys, and we want to give a big hello to you as well. So if you are in person, would you put your hands together and welcome in our online community? I know we have Jacob from Missouri worshiping with us right now, as well as others. So, so glad you guys are here. And today is a really, really good day because Kentucky, Oklahoma State, and OU are all undefeated in football right now. Isn't that great? We're all four and So thank you for cheering for Kentucky. I appreciate that. Uh, but no, it's a good day for other reasons as well. I'm excited to continue on in our series, Letters for My Future Self. Matt did a great job last week introing that series, and so today I'm going to pick up in week two, but I'm really, really excited about tonight. You just heard our host talk about it, Matt talk about it. We are going to have our vision night tonight, and it is going to be incredible. You are not going to want to miss what we have in store for tonight, and I am beyond excited about where God has brought us and where He's going to take us as well, and like you've been hearing over and over again. Make sure that you are here on time a little bit early tonight because you're not going to want to miss a second of what takes place this evening. So I'm excited about tonight. Can't wait to be back with you. But I'm also thrilled to be able to jump into week two of our series, Letters for My Future Self Today. Now, as I was thinking about this series, I was thinking about the moments that I've had when I've looked back at old pictures of myself and I've thought, man, what was I thinking in that picture? You ever had a moment like that? My mom just the other day gave me this picture, and it's actually a picture of me when I was a freshman. Uh, It's my school yearbook picture when I was a freshman in high school. And so I was looking at this and I thought, why am I not smiling? Why do I look mad, you know? Was I trying to act cool? Was I having a bad day? What's up with this picture anyway? And I showed it to Allison, my wife, and she said, you're probably mad because you're wearing that hideous shirt. Now. That was the 90s, okay, that was in style back then, I think, I don't know, but yeah. So I saw that picture and I thought, I bet some of our other staff members probably have some old pictures that uh, made them think, what was I thinking? And so take a look at this one right here, does anybody, can anybody guess who that is? That is Matt Thomason, our executive minister, and I don't want to know what he was thinking in that picture, honestly, because he looks like he is up to no good. How about this one right here, if on going to the next one? There you go. Now, that is James Summers, our next-gen director. And doesn't he look like just such a great guy? I mean, he just looks like a fun guy to be around. He looks like a nice guy. He's somebody I would want to hang out with in high school for sure. Okay, how about this next one? Can you guess who that is? That is Mr. Tim Tibbles himself. And he sent me this picture, and he said, I have no regrets. And I bet that's a lie. I bet he does have some regrets, honestly. But, you know, we all wish that we could go back in time and give some wisdom that we've learned over time to our younger selves but that's not possible unless you're marty mcfly and you have a delorean time machine uh, we're not able to go back in time we're not able to tell our younger selves the wisdom that we've learned as we've lived life however what we can do and the bible encourages us to do this is we can learn from the life experiences of others we can learn from the wisdom of godly people who have come before us. In fact, in the book of Proverbs, it says this. It says, he who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. And that's why we're in this series right now called Letters from My Future Self. Because we're looking at these three little letters that are tucked away in the back of our New Testament called 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And they're written by this guy named John who is one of Jesus' closest friends. In fact, probably his closest friend among his disciple group. John walked and talked with Jesus. But at the point when he's writing these little letters that are found in the back of your New Testament, John is now an old man. Some scholars believe he's in his 90s. He's been following Jesus for like 60 years now the church has existed for like 60 years at this point in in history and Things are tough. Being a Christian isn't easy. There's a lot of persecution that's taking place. And John wasn't exempt from this persecution. In fact, he's the last living apostle. All the other apostles, all the other original disciples, they have been killed, martyred for their faith. He's it. He's the last one alive. But even though he hasn't been killed for his faith, he's been arrested numerous times. He's been thrown in prison. Uh, He's been, uh, his life has been threatened. I mean, over and over and over again, he's been flawed. And he's been beaten. John has not had it easy as a follower of Jesus. And John knows that following Jesus is going to be tough for the next generation. He's an old man now and he's writing to younger Christians and he doesn't want them to give up on their faith because what he has learned over his 60 years of following Jesus is that following Jesus is so worth it. And that's why he says in his letter, which we call 1 John, He says, dear children, he's writing to younger Christians here, do not let anyone lead you astray. Don't get distracted. Don't get off course. Don't fall for the deceptions of this world. Keep your focus on Jesus because following him is so worth it. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what these letters are all about. Because sometimes when people hear, you know, well, John is writing to younger Christians so that, you know, they won't give up on their faith. We think that John might be saying, hey, this is a survival guide. This is what you need to do to survive in this life. Life is tough. Life is hard. It's full of trouble. And so this is what you need to do to just survive this horrible life that we live in right now because of sin. And I don't think that's John's attitude at all. See, I don't think John just survived in life I think John thrived I'm going to explain what I mean by that yeah he suffered yeah he was arrested yeah he was flogged yeah he went through a lot of trouble for the name of Jesus but I think he thrived because he followed Jesus because he was faithful to Jesus mission God used him in phenomenal ways and John had influence all over the world for the sake of Christ God used John to impact the world, and the world will never be the same because of his ministry and his faithfulness to Jesus. And here's the thing. John saw the same thing happening in the church of his day. The Church of Jesus Christ in the first century exploded, it grew, it spread all over the known world so much so that the Roman Empire, the greatest empire that existed, was threatened by the church, the Christians because these early followers of Jesus had so much influence in their culture. Yeah, it was hard being a Christian. It wasn't always easy, but it was fulfilling and it was satisfying in these early Christians. Thrived as they lived out the mission that God had given them. So much so that John can write in his letter, in his day and age, he can say the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And the reason why he can say the darkness is passing away, the darkness isn't winning, but the light is winning, is because he knew this truth. He knew greater is he who is in you in us than he who is in the world. Guys, it may look bad at times. It may look like evil is winning at times. But never, ever forget, greater is he who lives in us, his church, than he who is in the world. That truth is still true today. And I think what John wants us to understand wants us to get is that Jesus didn't save us just so we could survive this life, so we could escape this life. He saved us so that we can thrive. And by thrive, what I'm talking about is not having success like the world defines it. By thrive, this is what I'm talking about. We thrive when we align our lives with God and he empowers us to accomplish his purposes. And when we do this, Not only will we live fulfilled and satisfy lives, but we will change the world around us and we can say, like the Apostle John, the darkness is already passing away, already fading, and the true light is shining in the midst of that darkness. Now, the problem is, we wouldn't always say that that describes the culture that we live in today, at least in our immediate circle. Because sometimes we settle for a life that's far less than what God intends us to live. Sometimes we settle for a life that's much, much less than what God created us and designed us and wants us to live. Sometimes that happens because we listen to the wrong voices and we follow deceptive teachers, like Matt talked about last week, the Gnostics, who are trying to lead people away from the real Jesus. But sometimes that happens Because we forget who we are. We forget the new identity, the new life that Jesus died so we could have. So as we pick up at the end of 1 John chapter 2 and move into chapter 3 today, I think the big idea that John is trying to get across is this, no matter what, remember who you are. Don't forget your identity in Christ. And listen to what John says here. John says this 1 John chapter 2, starting verse 28. And now, dear children, continue in him, continue in Jesus, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called what? The children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made fully known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now, why is that John goes to such great lengths to remind us that we are born of God, that we are God's children? I think the answer is obvious because I think that's a truth we sometimes forget. You may not know this, but one of the biggest obstacles that we face when it comes to remembering our identity and living out our new life in Christ is our memory. Because here's the thing, even though Jesus has saved us, if you're a follower of his, even though Jesus has rescued us and he's given us this new identity and he's given us this new life, we still have a memory of our old life. We still have a memory of what life used to be like before we knew Jesus. And over time, we have developed habits and routines, and traditions that go against this new life that God wants us to live. And sometimes those old patterns of behavior are really, really hard to break. Sometimes it's hard for us to live where God wants us to live because we have a memory of what used to be, and for a long time we considered that to be normal. Normal. Let me give you an example of this or an illustration of this. Uh, I've mentioned before that I'm coaching my daughter Addie's soccer team. I'm also coaching my son's soccer team. But this is kind of a unique situation because I wasn't planning on coaching her team, but they didn't have a coach, so I got drafted. But I'm really glad I did it. It's really chaotic and hectic and busy, but I'm glad I did it because yesterday I got to coach Addie's first ever organized soccer game. I mean, she's done soccer in the past with like mini kickers here in Owasso where it's just like training and drills, but this was her first ever official game and her first time being part of an organized team. And I use that word organized loosely because it's four-year-old girls. It's kind of chaotic, really, but still, I try to keep it organized as much as I can. And it was, it was a lot of fun yesterday in her first game. Her team ended up winning two to one. I don't even think that her team knew that they won at the end of the game. I don't think they had a clue what was going on they were just chasing a ball around. But one thing that I'm trying to do is I'm just trying to get these girls who most of them have never even touched a soccer ball before. I'm trying to get them to understand just the fundamentals of the game. Like, for example, the big white rectangle that's painted around the field, you're not supposed to get out of that, okay? You're supposed to stay in those white lines, okay? Those are the boundaries that you stay in. When the ball goes out, the play stops, you know? You don't keep chasing it to the next field or whatever. I'm trying to teach them that kind of stuff. You know, I'm try- trying to teach them how to pass the ball, you know, how to kick it on the side of their foot and all that good stuff, just simple stuff. I'm trying to teach them that whenever I blow the whistle, that means stop, don't keep doing whatever you're doing, you know, and one thing I'm trying to teach them is probably the most important rule when it comes to soccer and it's this no hands don't use your hands soccer is meant to be played with your feet so don't use your hands and so my rule is in practice or uh, during a game, don't ever pick the ball up with your hands. Even if the ball's dead, not in play, only use your feet. Because I'm trying to get them to understand you just use your feet. And so we were having one of our early practices, and I kept saying, No hands, no hands, no hands, over and over again, no hands, because they're tempted. They just want to pick the ball up. They're used to doing that. And at one point, I was trying to get them to shoot on, on the goal. And so I was telling them to make a big kick, you know, big kick, as strong as you can. And so I kicked the ball out in front of this one girl, and she came up to it. and I guess she didn't like the position of the ball, and so she came up to it, she reared back to this big kick, and then she stopped, she looks at it, and she goes, like that, and moved it right over, and then she kicked it. And so I immediately said, okay, remember, girls, remember, no hands, no hands, no hands. And she turned around, and she looked at me, and she put her hands on her hip, and she goes, you don't know how hard that is, I've been using my hands my whole life. Yeah, she's a lot of fun, but, <laughs> but if you want to win in soccer, you got to play according to the rules, and the rules may be uncomfortable, may not be what we're used to, but you got to play according to the rules, and what John here is telling us is that now that we've been given this new life, there's a new set of rules that we live by. There's a new standard that we live by, and some of these new new conditions for this new life that we've now been given, they feel unnatural compared to how we used to live. See, Jesus didn't come just to forgive us. He, yes, came to do that. But he also came to rehumanize us. He came to teach us how to really live. He came to show us what life is really all about. And so he came to show us how to live in a way where we will live full, satisfied, complete lives and a lot of times that feels really really unnatural to us because we're used to living one way but our old habits traditions and routines can create a gap between how we currently live and what God has envisioned for our lives so you may not realize this but we all have an image problem we do The story of the Bible is that God created the entire world so that he could have a people that are his very own, a family, the human race, who are uniquely created in his image. Meaning he wanted children who would reflect his nature, his character, his purposes. He had a perfect purpose for us to live out. But you know what we did? We looked at his perfect purpose and said, no, we think we can do it better. And so we decided to chase after other things in order to find satisfaction and contentment. And all we did was make a mess of this creation that God made. We made a mess of our lives. And the Bible has a word that it applies to this mess that it uses to describe this mess that we're in. And the word that the Bible uses, the word sin... I know that's a word that makes some people feel uncomfortable. In fact, there are some churches that won't even use the word sin. They try to stay away from it because it makes people feel uncomfortable, gets them nervous. But I'm going to use it because God uses it. And I think we need to be aware of it because this is our our problem here. And the word sin is an ancient word that means to miss the mark. It's an archery term that means to aim at the wrong target. And that's what we did. God gave us this perfect life that we just had to aim for. And instead, we chose to aim at another target. And because of that, we corrupted his image within us. And now, the image that we bear isn't the image of God's nature and God's character and God's purposes. But the image that we bear is one of selfish desire. One of sin and corruption. And my question is, why do we do it? Why did we look at God's perfect purpose and aim at another purpose? that just messed up our lives? Well, I'm gonna give you a deep theological answer. Do you know why we sin? Because sin is fun. Now I'm serious, it really is. If you don't think it's fun, you're probably not doing it right. Uh, Sin is fun, and that may shock you that a preacher would say that, but guys, if it wasn't fun, then we wouldn't do it. Sin is fun until it's not. Until you have to face the consequences of sin. Sin's fun for a little while, but the fun that comes along with it doesn't last, and it will end up destroying your life. And it leads to shame and regret. Let me illustrate it like this. When I first got my driver's license, I was one of uh, the first among my friend group to have wheels, to have a car, and I had a great car. I had an '89 Buick LeSabre. Not really. It was the only car that I could afford at the time, though. It was gray. It was ugly, and it was a box. But it was wheels, and it got me where I needed to go. And one day after school, uh, this girl that I kind of liked, her name was Emily. Emily came up to me and she said, "Hey, I don't have a ride home. Would you drive me home?" And I'm like, "Oh yeah, I would, of course I will." And so um, you know, I we. We took off and she didn't live that far from our high school, but I took the long way, you know, because I wanted to spend as much time with her as I possibly could. And I was showing off, I was driving way too fast and it had started to rain. And we were going down this hill right before we got to her house. And as we're going down this hill, it had rained, I was going too fast. And, I, and all of a sudden, the stoplight at the bottom of the hill turned red, and I hit my brakes, and I couldn't stop. And I slid right into the car that was already stopped at the light and I had my first wreck. I didn't have my license that long at all. Uh, by the way, the girl never went back out with me because um, I, uh, I embarrassed myself and probably her at that moment. But I remember being embarrassed. I remember being upset, feeling guilty for being stupid. But the worst part was I had to call my dad and tell my dad what had happened. And so I got on the phone and I called him. I was like, dad, yeah, I was driving, it was raining. I had to give myself enough stoppage time. Uh, and I was taking this girl home and I slid in the back of the car. And he said, "Well, whoa, whoa, stop. You were taking a girl home? And I was just like, yeah. And uh, he said, that explains it. I understand that you don't need to tell me anything else. He knew exactly what had happened. But you know, speeding and showing off and all that kind of stuff, it was a lot of fun until it wasn't. You know, it was a lot of fun until I got the DUI. It was a lot of fun until I lost my family. Sin was a lot of fun until my spouse left me. It was a whole lot of fun until I lost my job. It was a lot of fun until I got arrested. It was a lot of fun until I got caught. Until I had to pay the consequences, face the consequences of my sin. And when, stop, and when sin stops being fun, it leads to what I want to call shame. See, we stop reflecting the image of God, and this becomes our image. And we start feeling shame. Shame is that voice that cries out to us and says, You're not worthy. You're not good enough. You'll never live a fulfilled, satisfied, content life. You're unlovable. You'll never experience a type of love that your soul is longing for because you know who you really are. And you can put on a good show, but you know on the inside who you really are. Shame is that voice of guilt and conviction that's within us. And when you live in shame for an extended period of time, then it leads to the feeling of being trapped, because you feel like you can't get out of it. No matter what you do, you can't get out of it. You can't erase the mistakes of the past, and that shame just continues to exist there, and so you try to do other things to move on, but all the pleasures of this world, all the desires of this world, they won't fill the emptiness that you have inside, and so you just feel trapped. Trapped. You feel like things are never going to change, never going to get any better. It's just the way things are. And then that leads us to the point of despair. Because we give up hope. And we do think the way things are the way they're always going to be. And so we settle for a life that's much less than what God ever intended us to live. You ever been there? I have. And our enemy convinces us, Satan convinces us, that that's the image that we're gonna to have to live with for the rest of eternity. And honestly, this is where we have all been at one point or another. And maybe you're there right now. And when God saw us in this spot, He had to make a decision, He had to make a choice. Does He just leave us here? They he just forget about us and leave us to the consequences of our sins? Does he abandon his plan, his plan for us? And the Bible gives us the answer. The Bible tells us, absolutely not. God wouldn't give up on us. He refused to give up on us. And the answer of no, that he wouldn't give up on us, came in Jesus and that's why John goes on to remind his readers he says in first John that the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work The reason why Jesus came was so that that would not be our image anymore, so that we could be adopted back into God's family, the family that we abandoned, the family that we deserted. See, Paul writes this in the book of Colossians, Paul says that Jesus, that he is the visible image. If we want to move on to the next slide. Yes, the Son is the image of the invisible God. Go back a slide, there we go, almost there. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. See, Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. He is the perfect, perfect image of God, and he came to repair our image. In fact, Jesus came to stand in our place, to take on our image so that he could give us his, so that we could once again be called God's children. Listen to what the scripture says. The scripture says that he gave, Jesus gave the right and the power to become children of God to those who received him. He gave this to those who put their trust in his name. He gave us the power to become God's children. And this theme of us becoming the children of God, the family of God, it's found all throughout scripture. Look what the book of Hebrews says. It says that Jesus came for the purpose of bringing many sons to glory. In other words, Jesus was the firstborn of creation, but he came to bring many sons, many children into God's family. Jesus became what we are so that we could become what he is. Paul plainly says this in 2 Corinthians. He says that God made him, speaking of Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've been baptized into Christ, when God looks at you, he no longer sees you, but he sees Jesus instead. See, Jesus stood in our place so that a transaction could take place in the mind of God. So that now, even though I know I'm a sinner, even though I know my past, even though I know that I have rebelled against God, I can stand before the Father of all creation in total confidence knowing that when my Heavenly Father looks at me, looks at Chad, he doesn't see sinful, dirty, corrupt, messed up Chad, but instead, he sees the image of his Son. And that is what God wants for every one of us. He wants that for you. And so, the whole point of following Jesus is for him to help you become what God has already declared you to be. See, our good works don't save us. We're saved in spite of our good works, but now that God has declared us righteous, declared us as his children, now the whole point of following Jesus It's to live up to what he's declared us to be. To try to reflect his image more and more in this life. Because one day we will be fully restored and live in a restored creation. But until that day comes, we still have to live in a broken world surrounded by broken people. And so while we live here in this broken world surrounded by broken people, we are to remember who we are. So that we become more and more like what God intended us to be those who reflect his image. And when we see who we're supposed to be clearly, it will bring clarity to our life. And it will bring a new quality of life. Because what we don't need to miss is that Jesus didn't come. Jesus didn't come just so that we could live in heaven one day. Jesus came so he could live in us now. And that's why Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I came to give life, life in all its fullness. Jesus didn't come just so that we could go to heaven one day. That's true. But he also came so that he could bring heaven into our lives right now. So that we could be heaven for other people, give people a taste of heaven in this world. We're here to start living this new life now. And the more we follow him, the more we will start to look like him. And so what does this new life look like when we start to really follow Jesus and surrender to Him? Where John tells us, and it's found in that passage that we looked at just a second. ago. Do you remember what John says? John says, "...continue in Him, continue in Jesus, so that when He appears, we may be confident and unashamed before Him." How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. See, first of all, when we remember who we are, we realize that we can move from a place of shame to a place of feeling loved, that we know that God has lavished his love on us and that he loves us in spite of us. And I think sometimes we struggle to believe that God really does love us. See, as I talk to Christians, what I have discovered is we're fine believing in the power of God. We believe in the power of God, that God can do anything. But we struggle sometimes to believe God really does love us because we know us. But you see, God's love is different because God's love isn't based on performance. Our culture has defined love as performance-based love. In other words, we love something because it's worthy of our love. Or we love someone because we consider them worthy of our love. That's not how God loves God loves us in the midst of our unworthiness. And that's a type of love that's foreign to this world. In fact, when John writes, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us, the NIV, I think, misses this altogether. And most English translations do. When you go back to the original Greek word that's used here, that phrase, how great, is actually literally translated, of what country is the love that the Father has lavished on us? In other words, I think what John is trying to say here. Is God's love is out of this world. God's love is foreign to us. It's something like we've never experienced before. Of what country, of what realm, of what universe is this love from that God has for us? See, God's love isn't based on our performance, but on our position. He loves us because we're his children. And when he declares you to be his child because you've accepted Jesus as your Lord... That's what matters. He's declared you to be his child. And so you can live in the confidence that that is exactly who you are. And when we embrace that, it will be the beginning of our end of our struggle with shame. But then once we realize that we're loved, then we will allow Jesus to move into our lives so that we can move in a position of feeling trapped to a position of change. Jesus can change our life to where we're not who we used to be. In 1 John 3, verse 3, it says this. It says, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. In other words, we can start to reflect Jesus' character, the more we follow him. When we allow him to enter into our lives, when we place our hope in him, we start to live like him. You see, God isn't waiting to the very end to fix our image. He wants to start doing it now. And I believe this is part of the gospel message that we've kind of overlooked or we've missed in the modern American church. You've probably seen a bumper sticker like this before or a license plate or a t-shirt that says, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Anybody seen that before? We've probably all seen that or heard that. And there's nothing wrong with that. If you have that on the back of your car, I'm not going to make fun of you or tell you that you're wrong or anything like that, but I don't think this is the full story. See, it's not that we're just forgiven. That's true. We are forgiven, but it's more than that. We aren't just forgiven. We're also changed, meaning that we allow Jesus to come into our lives and transform us And he is in the process of making us what God originally wanted us to be. That's why in 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul writes these words. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, his image. We're being transformed into his likeness. Notice that's in the ongoing uh, tense. We are now being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. See, one of the reasons why we get the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit at our baptism, so that the Spirit can continue to work in us, changes and transform us so that we can be more like Christ. And John says in 1 John 2, 28, that everyone who does what is right has has been born of Him. See, it's not that we're God's children because we are good. We do good because we are God's children. Doing good, being changed, is the result of us being declared the children of God. And John says, if that's not what's going on, then look at what he tells us. He goes on to say that no one who remains in him sins continually, keeps up with the sinful lifestyle, doing the same sins over and over again. No one who sins continually has seen him or knows him. In other words, if there's no change, if there's no difference, then you really don't know Jesus. Because if you know Jesus, we're not going to be perfect. We're still going to mess up. But you're going to see change. And honestly, that is our greatest witness to the world. Because the world can debate and argue our theology and our doctrines and all that kind of stuff. But they cannot argue with a changed life. When they see a changed life, it is our best, best proof that God's word is true. That the gospel is alive and that his spirit is living in us. But there's one more thing that we have as the children of God. And that is that we move from a place of despair to a place of hope. Because we know the way things are, this darkness that we see around us, is not how it will always be. We know that God is going to send his son back and when Jesus returns, everything is going to be made right again. But we see him clearly now, even though the world remains blind to him. John writes this. John says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we'll go on to the next slide. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who has this hope. We have hope knowing that this is not the end, that we're not living just for this life, but we're living for the life to come. And God has the power to rewrite anyone's story. All we have to do is right now give him the pen. And so what John here is trying to say is, this is the image that we now have in Jesus. This is the image that Christ has given to us. And we should be living on this side of the cross John here is saying, don't be tempted to be pulled back over to this side. You've left this side of the cross. Don't slip back over here. Don't hide over here. Don't be tempted to come back over here. Don't live on the wrong side of the cross. You can live on this side of the cross in total confidence, in total assurance. And this is now who you are. So live like it and don't let anyone tell you or convince you otherwise. And that's why I think he goes to great lengths to say, we are the children of God. Yes, that is what we are. He wants to drive that point home. Some of you guys may recognize the name Fred Craddock. He's a, he was a well-known biblical scholar and also a professor of preaching at Emory University. And um, he died a few years ago and he's written several books. In fact, if you've ever taken a preaching class in Bible college or seminary, you probably have read one of Fred Craddock's books. Very famous, very well known. I had a chance to meet Fred Craddock several years ago when I was in Bible college, because he actually graduated from my alma mater, uh, Johnson University. And I've heard Fred Craddock tell this story numerous times. When he was a young preacher, he went into a small diner in the backwoods of Tennessee. and when he walked in, he was trying to get away from everybody, he actually left the town where he was serving in order to go and get away, because he just needed to clear his head, and so he went and he sat down in this place he'd never been before at a table, and as he walked in, this one man kept staring at him, he knew that Fred wasn't from around there, and so this guy walked up to Fred Craddock, he said, hey buddy, you're not from here, are you? And Fred said, well, no, I'm not, and the guy said, "Uh, where are you from? And he told him, and then the guy said, well, what do you do for a living? And Fred said, well, I'm I'm in ministry. And he said, oh, I've got a story about a preacher I want to share with you. And Fred said, I just wanted to roll my eyes because I just wanted to get away. I just needed some peace and quiet. I just wanted to eat a meal by myself. But the guy started in. And he said, look out that window over there. He said, see that mountain over there? He said, my mom gave birth to me just on the other side of that mountain. He said, and she gave birth to me out of wedlock. In that day and age, that was a no-no, it was an embarrassment to the family. So she ended up giving me up to an orphanage. And for years, I had no idea who my dad was. And this fellow said, and that was extremely embarrassing because in, this, in that day and age, whenever somebody met you for the first time, they said, you know, what's your name? Who's your daddy? Everybody wanted to know who your daddy was. And he said, and I was always embarrassed. The local kids started to make fun of me because I didn't know who my dad was, so I started to fight. Anytime somebody would make fun of me because I didn't know who my dad was, I would just punch him, beat him up. But he said, the orphanage allowed us to go to a church that was just down the street. And he said, the church was the only place where nobody really asked me who my daddy was, so I felt comfortable and safe there. But one day, the church got a new preacher. The preacher didn't know me, and for several Sundays, this guy said, I snuck in and snuck out without saying anything to the preacher. But one Sunday, the preacher caught me at the back door and in front of everybody. He said, hey, son, what's your name? And the little boy at that time, he said, Benny? He said, Benny, who's your daddy? And with that, the crowd just went quietly quiet because everybody knew Benny's background. And then the preacher said, "Oh, wait, you don't have to tell me. I know who your dad is. I can see it. You're a child of the king, the king of kings. Son, you go out there in this world and claim your inheritance. The man then looked at Fred Craddock in this diner, and he said, that moment changed my life. He said, I was later baptized into Christ, and he said, I would have amounted to nothing if it wasn't for that preacher reminding me who my father is. The man walked off from the table, and the waitress walked up to Fred Craddock, and She said, do you know who that man is? And Fred said, apparently his name's Benny. And she said, that's Ben Hooper. The former governor of Tennessee, elected two terms. It's amazing what God can do with a life when you realize who he intended you to be. You are a child of the king of kings. And I believe in this world, it's time for us to let others know that so that together we can go out and claim our inheritance. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for today. In this time, we've had to open up your word, study what John has to write to us. We just pray that as we leave this place, that we will live as your children, your family, and that we will show everyone around us that they can have this inheritance that Jesus has given us as well. In his name, Jesus Christ, I pray, amen.